in the days after my friend Tony was killed, it was difficult to go back to school and carry on as before. It was hard not to think that some other afternoon we might have used that lunch hour to walk all the way down to Whitechapel, where we'd pretend we were going to buy albums in the record departments at Rushworth's, NAMS, or Beaver Radio. Tony didn't like to take a direct route through the center of town, as we might run into his father, who worked on a stall selling the Liverpool Echo. I knew his dad was estranged from the family, and Tony knew that my parents were separated, but that's as much as the guard came down. We didn't talk about our feelings or any of that kind of thing. We'd have had the shop assistants play a few new tracks from an LP under listening hood, even though they probably knew we didn't have any money. They were indulgent, and I'd make the occasional purchase of discounted sheet music or one of a box of reduced 45s on the counter. Most of these deleted titles were Bubblegum Fair that had outstayed their welcome in the charts, but sometimes you'd stumble upon a gem. One day, I rummaged through the discs and found an Electra single that I'd read about in Zigzag magazine, which featured articles about Captain Beefheart and love and other outfits that you couldn't read about anywhere else. The magazine had also printed peat frames meticulously, hand-drawn rock family trees, explaining how members of Zoot Money's big roll band had mutated into Dantalian's chariot and other absolutely essential information. It was due to such a frame diagram that I knew that Please Let Me Love You by the Bee Feeders was actually an early recording by a group that had been just about to change its name to The Birds. I'd seen the birds play twice in 1971. The first time was a ferocious show at Liverpool University, at which Clarence White's 20-minute Telecaster solo during Eight Miles High had just about eased the pain of seeing Liverpool lose to Arsenal in the FA Cup final earlier in the afternoon. The second occasion involved traveling right across the country to the cathedral town of Lincoln. I was a fairly naive 16-year-old who'd never slept in a field, but a friend John was a couple of years older and thought responsible enough to get us there and back without us getting into any trouble. We were given strict instructions from John's parents not to swallow anything we didn't recognize, and my Nana packed us some sandwiches. Lincoln was to be a one-day festival, but we had to camp on the site the night before in order to catch as many of the acts as possible. John had been a scout, so he knew a thing or two about pitching a tent, even in a howling rainstorm. Unfortunately, I didn't know that you don't touch the canvas from the inside, and we spent the rest of the night shivering and trying to dry out by the standards of 
British summertime, the next day was blisteringly hot, and the ground was soon baked dry. We got ourselves a good viewing spot and dined on disgusting fake vegetarian ham from a can, which might as well have been rations of bully beef. The bill of the Lincoln Folk Festival had its share of English folk stars, from Sandy Denny to Pentangle and Steely Span, but the day kicked off with the harmonica and guitar of Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. I had one of Tim Harden's records, so seeing his name on the poster was reason enough to get there early. I didn't know enough about the effects of drugs to recognize what made his performance seem so fragile and scattered with just a few moments of unsteady beauty. Day got a little long on jigs and reels and fay hippie songs for my liking. So when the acoustic birds arrived around sundown and proceeded to plug in and storm through, so you want to be a rock and roll star? It was just the jolt the day needed. A year earlier, the birds had been rained out at the bath festival, so played an impromptu acoustic set. That had gone over really well, hence their billing at Lincoln. After that opening, Electric Blast, Roger McGuinn, and the band brought out their acoustic guitars, but the crowd found that Clarence White was just as dazzling on his Martin as he was on his Fender. Like most festivals in those days, nothing ran on time. We arrived at Lincoln Station in time to see the last train out of town. Pulling out of sight, and tipped out our pockets to find that we had barely enough money between us for a cup of tea, let alone a night and a bed and breakfast. There seemed no sense in heading back to the festival site, so we rolled out our blankets and tried to sleep on the now chilly stone floor of the station building. Any sleep we managed must have been pretty fitful. We stirred at first light, shivering more from exhaustion than the temperature. It was still long before the train started running again. Suddenly, an exotically attired figure appeared out of nowhere, strolling along the line of stragglers like a drill sergeant at the sound of Rivet. He told us he was from Nigeria but he spoke in a theatrical, upper-class English accent. He seemed to take pity on our bedraggled appearance and offered us breakfast at his flat. This was expressly the kind of invitation that our parents had instructed us to refuse, but we followed him a few blocks to what looked like beat-up student accommodation. Walls were lined with psychedelic posters, and there was a lingering in the air of incense and funny cigarettes. Our host disappeared through a beaded curtain, and suddenly loud music was booming from the next room, despite our early hour. Seconds later, he draped himself in a doorway, smoking a joint and wearing just a blue satin robe gathered carelessly at his waist. Fuck me, he's got no kicks on, said John, and we bolted for the door. <laughs>